0: but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. As we, uh, before we dig into First Thessalonians chapter four, um, I just want to remind you a little bit about the context of what we're about to read. The Apostle Paul uh, has over the book of First Thessalonians or the letter of 1 Thessalonians just expressed how much he loves and cares the Thessalonian church, how he longs to be with them, how they are his joy, his hope, his crown, his delight, how he cherishes them, how he w- prays that they would abound in love for one another. And so it's in this context of love that he gives this strong exhortation today about how to live a happy and a holy life. Life. So let's look together. First Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll read verses 1 through 8. This is God's word. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives us, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you do not leave us to figure out the most important things in life on our own but that you give us your instruction and your wisdom and your goodness and your love and your exhortation through your word. So God, pray that we would receive this as a gift, that it would challenge us, that it would transform us, and that it would lead us in the way everlasting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thessalonica was part of the Greek empire, and in the Greek empire, Sexual freedom was at a premium. Uh, Men were not expected to be monogamous in their marriage, to be faithful in their marriage. In fact, they were expected to have many lovers among them. Uh, Things like homosexuality and pedophilia was not only acceptable, it was encouraged throughout the empire. And then you had cities like Thessalonica that were major trade cities in which a lot of sailors would go through, and in those major trade cities, there would be temples set up, and in those temples, there would be employed prostitutes to help men in their religious experience. Thessalonians lived in a sex-obsessed, sex-saturated culture, where perversion was not only allowed, it was... Again, celebrate it. Aren't you so glad we don't live in such a culture like that today? The reality is there are temples to sex all around us, even in Green Bay, whether it be a strip club or an adult bookstore or a massage parlor that provides extra services. There are also temples to sex under our own roofs, whether it be our TV screen or our computer or magazines or romance novels all you need is an internet connection. It's been said that that the average child views pornography now at the age of 12 before they're even a teenager. Today, these temples have become mobile and very accessible in your purses and in your pockets, whether it be on phones or tablets. All of these serving potentially as sexual temples. Sex is more accessible, more private, more secretive today than probably ever before. Back in January 2003, which is 20 years ago, when when the internet was less accessible at that time, pornography was a $10 billion a year business, which was more than the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. It has now grown 10 times that size and is a $100 billion a year industry. In 16 secular US states have have declared the explosion of pornography a public health crisis. Because it wrecks people, it wrecks families, it wrecks communities, it wrecks states, it wrecks nations. Temples are all around us, but they are also inside of us. Jesus said, for from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, adultery, coveting, sensuality. All these evil things come from within, and they defile A person. Pastor Sam Asbury, who fights same-sex attraction faithfully, observes that none of us are sexually straight. All of us are broken. All of us are fallen. All of us have been perverted in our view of sexuality. And I want to point that out because I think the temptation is when we come to a passage like this, we think of all the people out there who need to hear this sermon, but the reality is, is this letter was not written to the city of Thessalonica. It's written to the church of Thessalonica. It's written to Christians like you and me. Christians are who is it's written to you and me as well. And so, as we hear this passage, we want to make sure we're not applying it to other people, but that we are applying it to ourselves. Now in this passage, Paul gives a very clear and concise command that that is the focus of this passage and of the sermon. And his very clear command is that we abstain from sexual immorality. That's the epicenter of this passage. But from there, I want to ask three questions. The first question is, what is sexual immorality? Like how do we decide what is right and what is wrong? Secondly, is why should we abstain from sexual immorality, especially when it seems to be so much fun and it being pleasurable? The third is how can we abstain from sexual immorality? Even if we agree with all of these things, it seems just about impossible to do so. So how can we do that, all right? So what is sexual immorality? Why should we abstain from it? And how can we abstain from it? So first, what is sexual immorality, as you probably know, over the past 30 years in our country, um, the answer to this question has changed quite a bit. Uh, the sexual ethics in our, in our country are very different than it was 30 years ago. Just give you a few examples, when Barack Obama ran as President of the United States, one of the platforms he ran on was that, that marriage was to be between one man and one woman, and that has changed so drastically to today. Um, I, I visited a, a friend, and, and she has her friend her son who, special needs in public school, and up on the refrigerator, there was a drawing, and across the drawing, she said, this is how my son now spells the alphabet, L-G-B-T-Q, and she was grieving over that. And so there's a lot of confusion about what is moral and what is immoral when it comes to sexuality, and so for that reason, when we're trying to ask the question, what is moral and immoral, I think we actually have to ask a question below the question. And the question below that question is, how do we decide what is wrong in any sphere of life? How do we decide what is moral and what is immoral? You know, who gets to decide if pornography is wrong or just a rite of passage for a young men? Who gets to decide if sleeping with your fiance is immor- immoral or just an appetizer to something that is coming? Who gets to decide if lusting is wrong or if it's just the way you were made? Who gets to decide if bestiality or polygamy or pedophilia is immoral? Or if it's just a progressive view of sexual freedom? How do we decide? Who decides? Well, there are really three options that I see in how people decide what is moral and immoral. The first that I see is that we follow our hearts. That, that we go and, and we're kind of like, you know, if it feels right, then it has to be right right? The, the faultiness in this is obvious if you look at people who are 20 years younger than you, right? No matter what age you are, you look at people 20 years younger than you, you see decisions that they are making and you're like, that's not right, that's not good, that's going to lead to trouble, right? Whatever it might be, it might be in finances or something else, you're like, nope, they're following their feelings and it's not going to go well. But here's the thing, people 20, older, 20 years older than a year are thinking the same thing about you, You know, we follow our feelings, and it leads to a lot of bad things, and and it takes us a long time to figure out that our feelings can't be trusted. God himself said our hearts are deceitful and wicked and cannot be trusted. And so that's one option, is to follow our hearts and our feelings, but that doesn't seem like a good option. The second option is to simply follow what our culture says, what government declares as being acceptable, and so instead of the, the wickedness of an individual human heart, we're taking the collective into, uh, wickedness of, of all of our culture that is around us. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but government and politicians are not known for their morality, believe it or not. I mean, Hitler uh, convinced thousands and thousands of people that it was good to just exterminate the Jews. I mean, if you look at our own country, you see a country uh, that prided itself in slavery and racism for hundreds of years and exploited Native Americans. We look back now at these times in our country with remorse. And so it doesn't seem wise to say, okay, we develop what is true and good and moral by what our culture and what our government says. The third option, which is what I would propose, is that we determine what is sexually immoral by what God says. Look at verse eight with me in this passage. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, because man approves of it, right? But God. God is the creator of mankind. He is the creator of your body. He is the creator of sex itself. And because he is the author of it, he and he alone can tell us what the proper use of it is, what is right and good and wonderful and what is sinful and broken and destructive. Let me give you this example. I don't know if you've ever gotten a brand new car or maybe a used new car, um, but whenever I get one, I usually take the instruction man, I know men are not supposed to do this, but I take the instruction man and I start reading through it and I'm guessing many of you do the same because it's brand new and it's precious and you wanna take good care of it and you find out you know, how you're supposed to treat the car, how it operates, things like that. And the reason why you do this is because you trust the people who created the car more than you trust yourself. But, but imagine, imagine if you decided, you know what, the people who made this car don't know what they're talking about. I know better than they do. And I have heard that diesel fuel gets you more miles per gallon. And so I'm going to take diesel fuel and I'm going to put it into my gas tank and see if I can get more miles per gallon. And while I'm at it, oil changes have gotten really expensive. And so instead of changing the oil every 5,000 miles, I'm just going to do every 50,000 miles, right? The one who created the car is the best one to tell us how to operate the car and take care of the car for a long and healthy life of the car. In the same way when we ask what is sexual immorality, the best answer is going to come from the one who created sex itself, the one who created our bodies. And so how do we decide what is moral and immoral? It cannot come from our hearts, it cannot come from the culture, it has to come from God himself. And so looking back at this passage, look at verse 3 again. He says simply this, abstain from sexual immorality. This term sexual immorality is a single word in the Greek, and it's the word pornea, from which we get the term pornography. But it, but it refers to any act of adultery or sexual immorality or fornication, which means sex outside the context of marriage. And so it includes everything from hooking up with someone online to sexting, to having any type of Sexual contact with boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance, And this is what it means. Now you might say, "Wow, that seems extreme, right? Like that's, that's a lot. Jesus takes it even further. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. "You have heard it said, "You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so sexual immorality, according to Jesus, according to God includes not only what we do, but also what we think, and what we ponder on, and what we are passionate about, if it is immoral. And so to give an overly simplistic definition, according to God's word, and we're not going to cover all the verses today, we don't have time, but sexual immorality is any sexual passion of the heart or practice of the body outside the context of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. So that's a Overly simplistic definition, but that's how God defines it throughout the scriptures, okay? The second question we have is why should we abstain from sexual immorality? To state the obvious, uh, sexual experiences are pleasurable, right? God created them to be pleasurable. And so the question is why should we not indulge in them? Why should we abstain instead of indulging in those pleasures? And I wanna think about this in the context of three seconds, okay? I want to think of it in the context of that three-second window where temptation comes into your life, okay? And you have a choice in that three-second window to abstain or to indulge in sexual immorality, okay? And so what, do we, what are the things that we can think of? What are, what's the ammunition that can give to us to pursue abstinence instead of indulging in immorality in those moments, okay? So the first is this, is to please your God. Verse 1 again. Through verse two. He says, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. In other words, this isn't our sexual ethics, this is God's sexual ethic given through the Lord Jesus. Now, I love verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I've actually been meditating on verse 1 of chapter 4 for over a year. It is one of my favorite verses uh, in Thessalonians, if not in the whole Bible. And I love it because I don't know about you, but so many times I think about how I mess up, how I'm a failure, how I feel like I'm not getting very far in my walk with God. And and this is what he says. Paul says, second half of verse 1, he says, walk, mean live life, And to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. I love this because Paul is is saying, you know what? God is at work in your life. He is changing you. He is transforming you. He is growing you in godliness. We can celebrate these victories. We can praise God for his work in our lives and in the lives of others. But as glorious as that is, don't give up. Don't stop pressing on. Don't think that you have arrived. He says, do so more and more. And so celebrate the victories, yes, but continue to pursue God's design for you in sexuality and sexuality in all of life. And he says that we should do this. One reason we should do this is because our obedience brings pleasure to God. It brings pleasure to God. Now, I wanna make sure this isn't misunderstood. It's not saying... That in order for God to accept you, to receive you, to, to delight in you, you have to obey him perfectly, and then he will receive you and be pleased with you. It's not saying it's that God is like an earthly father that, that never says he loves you, has always disappointed you, and is always waiting for you to shape up so that he can be pleased with you. That's not what it's saying. Rather, the picture that Paul is giving here and throughout a lot of his other letters is that Paul is saying that we are called to please a father who cherishes us and delights in us and loves us deeply. And one of the ways that we worship him is by pleasing him through obedience. So my family and many of yours are wrapping up basketball season. We have four kids in basketball and it's pretty consuming. Um, but one of the things that, that I think about a lot that always amazes me is I drive to these basketball games that are like an hour away, and I'm looking around at the parents, and it kind of amazes me because, you know, these parents have rearranged their work schedule. Uh, they have given up their whole evening. Uh, they have invested the money to drive there and to pay for all of, you know, whatever the, 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 the uniforms and the the shoes and all that sort of stuff. And these parents have done all this really just to sit and watch their kid put an orange ball in an orange hoop, right? That's, that's all that they're doing, watching their kids run up and down the court. And they make all of these sacrifices to make it happen. And then when their child makes a shot, they go crazy, Right, like it's worth all of that. They're like, yes, that's my boy, that's my girl. They may not do that loud, but inside they're like, all right, yeah, I'm so glad to see it. Right, like they're excited for their children because they love them and they take pleasure in them having victory and having, uh, having success in their life. They're cheering them on. You know, in that three second window of temptation, when a lustful thought enters your mind and you choose to enter into Prayer instead of temptation. When when clickbait shows up on the screen and instead of clicking on it, you click out of the window. When that romance movie or romance novel or movie or commercial starts taking you down a wrong path and you decide to put it down or turn it off. When you get a mysterious text message wanting some photos and you block them, God, your father in heaven, isn't yawning. He is shouting, saying, Yes, that's my boy, that's my girl. He takes pleasure in your successes, in your victories, and in your triumphs. And so when you hit that three-second window of temptation and you have to make a decision, I want you in that moment to remember that God is your father, that he cherishes you, he delights in you, he rejoices over you with sinking. He is with you in that three-second window. He knows what you're going through. He knows how difficult it is for you. And when you choose abstaining over indulging, God is cheering you and it brings him pleasure because he delights in your growth and your success and your victories. That's the first reason, okay? We should choose to abstain instead of indulge because it pleases our heavenly Father. The second uh, is to embrace your holiness, you know, maybe you're here today and you weren't expecting this in the sermon, but, but you're here, you know, maybe you're in high school or college or older and you're like, man, what's God's will for my life? Am I supposed to be a plumber, a truck driver, or a teacher? Like, what is God's will for my life? Well, the good news is uh, I know God's will for your life. The mystery has been solved. It's right here in verse three. God tells us his will for your life. You ready for this? Verse three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, to understand this passage, we have to get a little bit into the geek, get geeky, Greeky, as I said. Uh, in the original Greek language, uh, there is an important Greek word that runs throughout this passage that you can't quite detect in the English. And it is the word for sanctification here in this passage, which is. The word agiasmos, it actually occurs two more places in this passage in verse four and in verse seven. So in verse four it says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness. That's again the word agiasmos, that's translated sanctification up above and honor. And then verse seven, for God has not called you for impurity but in holiness, that's agiasmos. So the question is why is this single word translated differently? throughout this passage. And the reason is, is because our holiness is both an event and it is a process. It's an event and a process. So first, it's an event. In verse 7, it says you are called in holiness, okay? And so when you repented of your sins, when you trusted in Jesus for your salvation, at that very moment, all of your sin was transferred to Jesus. He paid for it in full upon the cross on your behalf, okay? But in your transferring of all your sin to Jesus, there is this great exchange in which all of Jesus' righteousness is transferred on to you, And you become righteous as if you had never sinned in your entire life. That is God's judgment before you, that you are righteous and sanctified and holy. It is forensic. It is absolute. It is definitive. You are declared holy because of Jesus. But as we know, even though we are declared holy, we don't always act holy, okay? We don't always act distinct or separate from the sexual ethic of the world, And what God is calling us to do in this passage, he's saying, recognize that you are holy in Christ and embrace your holiness. Live according to the holiness that God has already made you. And this process of growing into who you now are in Jesus is the process called sanctification. This is how the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. It asks the question, what is sanctification? I think we have it. Do we have that? What is sanctification? Do we have that? There it is says that sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And so we become more and more like the God that we worship and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And so think of it this way. If you're familiar with the term justification, that is an event where you are declared righteous. Sanctification is the process of becoming who you already are in Jesus, in Jesus, you are holy, you're righteous, you're without sin. Sanctification is the process of becoming you, of who you already are in Jesus. And so when you put sin to death, when you seek to live onto righteousness, you're not trying to become someone else, you're trying to become yourself. And so what Paul is encouraging us here is when we hit that three-second window of temptation, temptation, Right, that that we should remember that this is an opportunity to please our Heavenly Father who cherishes us and delights in us, but it's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity to be consistent with our holiness, to embrace our holiness, and to live according to the holiness that Jesus has already made us. The final motivation we have to pursue purity and holiness in this passage is to love your brother. Look at verse six with me. It says that no one transgresses, or wrong his brother in this matter, which is the matter of sexual immorality. Satan wants us to believe that what we do in private affects no one other than ourselves, if it even affects us, right? You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's what Satan wants us to believe. But here's the reality. If you're indulging in sexual immorality, even if nobody else knows about it, the reality is it is still has collateral damage all around you. It affects your relationship and your intimacy with, with your family members, whether it be a wife or a husband or your future wife or a future husband. It affects, affects your relationship with your children or your parents or your friends. It cuts you off from people. It makes you isolate. And so there's always a horizontal ramification to indulging in sexual sin. But more than that, it also affects our relationship with God. You see, as a Christian, you are united to Christ. There is nothing you can do to, to sever your union with Christ, but how we live does affect our communion with Christ and our intimacy with Christ. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will see God clearer. They will see his beauty, his glory, his majesty. And we, when we live in a way that is inconsistent with our holiness, what happens is it blurs our picture of God and affects our communion with him. So for the person you are engaging in sexual immorality with, either physically or in your heart, whether they're willing or not, it affects them. It is unloving to them. It is saying to them, I want you to commit your body to me, but I don't want to covenantly commit my life to you. You're saying, I want your body, but I don't want you. Essentially, you're saying, I wanna use you, and when I'm tired of you, discard you like a piece of gum. That is not loving, that is lusting, and it is selfish and unloving to the person who's the victim of your selfishness. And this is serious to God. Let's look at verse six again. It says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter of sexual immorality, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. God loves his children, God loves his image bearers, and when they are demeaned or objectified, it angers God because of his love for them. And he is an avenger for those who have been exploited. And so again, when we hit that three second window, where there is this temptation that happens, the question is, why should we not indulge in sexual immorality? And the reason is because when we choose the narrow path that leads to righteousness, it brings pleasure to our Heavenly Father who loves us and delights in us. Because it is an opportunity to embrace and grow into the holiness that Jesus has already purchased by his blood for you. And because it's an opportunity to love your brother and sister and other image bearers of God. Final question, how can we abstain from sexual immorality? You know, for many of us here, this all sounds great. We're all shaking our head. Yep, this sounds good. This sounds right. This sounds like what I agree with, but it sounds impossible, right? Like, how do we do this? How do we pursue sexual purity? How do I gain victory in these areas? And there are two ways that are listed here uh, in this passage. The first is by knowing God. Look at verse three through five with me again. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of the lust, of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Gentile is used in a way here that is to refer to all unbelievers, people who do not know the Lord as their God. And what he's saying is that they have been mastered by the lusts of their hearts. They are enslaved to the lusts of their hearts. And so the question, how does knowing God empower us to get freedom, to abstain from sexual immorality? Well, it is more than simply knowing about God intellectually. It is knowing God personally and intimately. You see, this word know in the Bible often refers to a very intimate knowing of one another. For example, in Genesis 4.1, it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And so he knew her in such a way that she got pregnant. He knew her in very intimate ways. See, all of us long to be fully known and to be fully loved, to be naked and unashamed, for someone to see all of our warts and still cherish us. And for the Christian we find that ultimate fulfillment and longing in God himself. Because we are known and loved and cherished by God. He knows all of our flaws, all of our wrinkles, all of our warts. He knows it all. And he loves us and cherishes us and because we have been mastered by his knowledge of him of us and because we have grown in our knowledge of him, we do not need to fill this need and the passions of the lust. And so if you want to abstain from sexual immorality, God is calling you to not only know him, but to know know him, to grow in intimacy with him, to pursue him, to know his love and his grace and his mercy, to do this through, through prayer, through scripture reading, through fellowship, to know how much God loves you that you don't have to go and search for it in other people or other things. So that's one, one way how, but the second is by the indwelling of God, verse eight. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. And then here's the important kind of exclamation point: Who gives His Holy Spirit to you? You see, God's calling to, sustain, to, to abstain from sexual immorality is not difficult; it is impossible. And God does not give you this impossible command and then leave you without the resources to fulfill it. No, instead, God gives you himself through the Holy Spirit to fill you, to indwell you, to empower you, to pursue the purity that he has called you to. Let me give you kind of a silly example in the theme of cars. When I was a teenager, I had this old car Never read the instruction manual. It was like a 1,000 bucks. It was not much of anything to look at. And because I you know, didn't have a whole lot of money, I would often like, you know, the gas was often below a quarter of a tank. We'll just say that. And because of that, uh, sometimes I would start to run out of gas. And when I was running out of gas, I remember I'd like stomp on the pedal. Like, like that will somehow make gas come out of thin air. I don't know. But I'd stomp on the pedal. Like, come on car, let's go, let's go, let's go, right? I was commanding the car to do something that it was unable to do because it did not have the resources to do it, right? You know, God is not a stingy God like a teenage boy. God is an abundant God who who not only gives you a little bit of the Holy Spirit, but fills you with the Holy Spirit to give you the power of God to pursue the purity that he has called you to. And so how can you abstain from sexual immorality? By knowing God. And knowing him more and more and more, knowing his love and care for you, that you don't have to go and drink from empty cisterns, but also through the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells you. You do not have to fight this fight alone. God is with you in fights on your behalf. Let me end with this. If you are here and you are just convicted about what you're hearing, if you're wrestling a lot with sexual sin in your life, First, I want to let you know that, that by the blood of Jesus, if you trust in him, you are washed clean, you are pure, you are holy. That is how God sees you. But he wants you to grow in your freedom, grow in your purity, grow in your holiness. And as we've seen throughout the book of First Thessalonians, we do not do this isolation, in isolation. We do this in community. And so if you're here today and you want to grow in holiness in this area of your life, you'll see in your bulletin, there's a QR code that you can scan and there will be a forum for ladies and a forum for men. The one for ladies will go to a female counselor. The one for men will go to a male pastor and we will help connect you to people that can help walk through this journey and battle of purity with you. So I encourage you to do that. It's all confidential. We're not putting on Facebook or anything like that. So feel free to go and do that. But the final thought I want to give to you is more of a positive thought. Um, One reason we misuse sex is not because we love it too much. That's what people are tempted to think is that we love it so much that's why we just abuse it. But it's actually because we love it too little. let me, let me give you this illustration. So I remember, um, you know, several years ago, we got a new puppy, and uh, Charlie, and we loved this dog. Uh, it's the cutest little dog. Um, and, you know, we would, you know, carry it carefully and, and we would, you know, do everything we could just to pamper this dog to make sure it was well taken care of and nothing went wrong with the dog. And, and that the dog would grow and be healthy and, and, and live life to the fullest. Now, imagine if we're walking down the street and someone's like, hey, can I, can I walk your dog for a little bit? And you're like, well, okay, right? And they take the leash and they just start tugging it and pulling it and dragging the dog down the street. You'd be like, no, no, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. Why? Because you cherish that dog, because you delight in that dog, because you, you want that dog to live life to the fullest, right? In the same way, if you cherish sexuality like God does, you want to guard it and protect it and take care of it. You'll want it to be used in the way that it was intended for God's glory. Do you know who cherishes and values sex more than you do? God does. If you read the books of Song of Solomon, it reads like 50 shades of gray, but inside the context of marriage. If you look at Genesis chapter one, the very first command in all of the Bible It's to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to have babies. And the last time I checked, you don't have babies through fist bumps and high fives, right? This is God's command. God calls us to abstain from sexuality, not because he hates us, not because he wants to ruin our fun or take away life, but because he loves us and cherishes us and delights us and wants us to live life to the fullest. We're gonna sing a song here in a little bit called Trust and Obey. And it seems like such an oxymoron at, at times. But, but we've said here time and again, if you want happiness, pursue holiness. Because if you pursue happiness over holiness, you will get neither. But if you pursue holiness over happiness, God will give you both. He's encouraging you in this passage today to love sexuality enough that you abstain from sexual immorality. Let's pray. Lord God, we're thankful again um, that you convict us by your spirit, that you remind us that we are living in ways that are detrimental to us and to those around us and to our relationship with you. And so God, we pray today that by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may more and more live to please you, to glorify you in our sexuality. Pray for those here who have wrestled for a long time in isolation. Pray that they would not continue in isolation, but that they would connect with others to pursue purity for their good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.